0: Chapter 8 of Lady Jane Grey and Her Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Lady Jane Grey and Her Times by Ida Ashworth Taylor. Chapter 8, 1548. Lady Jane's temporary return to her father. He surrenders her again to the admiral. The terms of the bargain. One of the secondary but immediate effects of the Queen's death was to send Lady Jane Grey back to her parents. It was indeed to Seymour and not to his wife that the care of the child had been entrusted. But in his first confusion of mind, After what he termed his great loss, the admiral appears to have recognized the difficulty of providing a home for a girl in her twelfth year—twelfth year—in a house without a mistress, and to have offered to relinquish her to her natural guardians. Having acted in haste, he was not slow to perceive that he had committed a blunder, and quickly reawakened to the importance of retaining the possession and disposal of the child. On September seventeenth, not ten days after Catherine's death, he was writing to Lord Dorset to cancel, so far as it was possible, his hasty suggestion that she should return to her father's house, and begging that she might be permitted to remain in his hands. In his former letter he explained, he had been partly so amazed at the death of the queen as to have small regard either to himself or his doings, partly had believed that he would be compelled, in consequence of it, to break up his household. Under these circumstances, he had suggested sending Lady Jane to her father as to him who would be most tender of her. Having had time to reconsider the question, he found that he would be in a position to maintain his establishment, much on its old footing. Therefore, putting my whole affiance and trust in God, he had begun to arrange his household as before, retaining the services not only of the gentlewomen of the late queen's privy chamber but also her inferior attendants, and, doubting lest your lordship should think any unkindness that i should by my said letter take occasion to rid me of your daughter so soon after the queen's death for the proof both of my hearty affection towards you and goodwill towards her i mind now to keep her until i shall next speak to your lordship unless i shall be advertised from your lordship of your express mind to the contrary his mother will he has no doubt be as dear to lady jane as though she were her daughter, and for his part he will continue her half-father, and more. It was clear that the admiral would only yield the point upon compulsion. Dorset, however, was not disposed to accede to his wishes. Developing a sudden parental anxiety concerning the child, he had been content to leave to the care of others for more than eighteen months. He replied firmly, though courteously, negativing the admiral's request. Considering, he said, the state of my daughter and her tender years, wherein she shall hardly rule herself as yet without a guide, lest she should, for lack of a bridle, take too much the head and conceive such opinion of herself that all such good behavior, as she heretofore have learned by the queen's and your most wholesome instruction, should either altogether be quenched in her, or at the least much diminished. I shall, in most hearty wise, require your lordship to commit her to the governance of her mother, by whom, for the fear and duty she owes her, she shall be most easily ruled and framed towards virtue, which I wish, above all things, to be most plentiful in her. Seymour, no doubt, would do his best, but, being destitute of any one who should correct the child as a mistress and monish her as a mother, Dorset was sure that the admiral would think, with him, that the eye and oversight of his wife was necessary. He reiterated his former promise to dispose of her only according to Seymour's advice, intending to use his consent in that matter no less than his own. Only I seek in these her young years wherein she now standeth either to make or mar, as the common saying is, the addressing of her mind to humility, soberness, and obedience. It was the letter of a model parent, anxious concerning the welfare, spiritual and mental, of a beloved child. And Dorset, as he sealed and dispatched it, will have felt that policy and conscience were for once in full accord. Lady Dorset likewise wrote, endorsing her husband's views. Whereas of a friendly and brotherly good will you wish to have, Jane, my daughter, continuing still in your house, I give you most hearty thanks for your gentle offer, trusting, nevertheless, that for the good opinion you have in your sister, by courtesy meaning herself, you will be content to charge her with her, who promiseth you not only to be ready at all times to account for the ordering of your dear niece, but also to use your counsel and advice on the bestowing of her, whensoever it shall happen. Wherefore, my good brother, my request shall be that I may have the oversight of her with your good will, and thereby I shall have good occasion to think that you do trust me in such wise as is convenient that a sister be trusted of so loving a brother. The singular humility of the language used by a king's granddaughter in demanding restitution of her child is proof of the position held by the admiral in the eyes of those as well fitted to judge of it as Dorset and his wife, only six months before he was sent to the scaffold. It was none the less plain that they were determined to regain possession of their daughter and, though not abandoning the hope of moving her parents from their purpose, Seymour yielded provisionally to their will and sent Lady Jane home. A letter from this small bone of contention, dated October first, thanking him for his great goodness and stating that he had ever been to her a loving and kind father, proves that her removal had taken place by that time. The same courier probably conveyed a letter from her mother, making her acknowledgments for Seymour's kindness to the child and his desire to retain her, and adding an ambiguous hope that at their next meeting both would be satisfied. The admiral, at all events, intended to obtain satisfaction. Where his interest was concerned, he was an obstinate man. Notwithstanding his apparent acquiescence he meant to retain the custody of Lord Dorset's daughter, and he did so. Even his household understood that the concession made in sending her home was but temporary, and in a conversation with another dependent, Harrington, the same who had served his master as go-between before, observed that he thought the maids were continuing with the admiral in the hope of Lady Jane's return. A visit paid by Seymour to Dorset decided the question. In the end, it is the latter who speaks. After long debating and much sticking of our sides, we did agree that my daughter should return. The admiral had come to his house, and had been so earnest in his persuasions that he could not resist him. The old bait had been once again held out. Lady Jane, if Seymour could compass it, was to marry the king. Her mother was wrought upon till her consent was gained to a second parting. And when this was the case, observed the Marquis, throwing, according to precedent, the responsibility upon his wife, it was impossible for him to refuse his own. He added a pledge that, except the king, he would spend life and blood for Seymour. Thus the alliance between the two was renewed and cemented. A further item in the transaction throws an additional and unpleasant light upon the means taken to ensure the Lord Marquis's surrender. The admiral was a practical man, and knew with whom he had to deal. He had not confined himself to vague pledges, which Dorset knew as well as he did that he might never be in a position to fulfill. He had accompanied his promises by a gift of hard cash, whether, as it were, for an earnest penny of the favor that he would show unto him when the said Lord Marquis had sent his daughter to the said Lord Admiral, he sent the said Lord Marquis immediately 500 pounds, parcel of 2,000 pounds, which he promised to lend unto him, and would have asked no bond of him at all for it, but only to leave the Lord Marquis's daughter for a gauge. Five hundred golden arguments, and more to follow, were found irresistible by the needy Dorset. The pressing necessity that Jane should be under her mother's eye disappeared. The bargain was struck, and the guardianship of the child bought and sold. The admiral was triumphant. It was not only the point of vantage implied by the possession of the little ward, which he had feared to forfeit, but that his loss might be the gain of his brother and rival. There would be much ado for my Lady Jane, he told his brother-in-law, Northampton, and my Lord Protector, and my Lady Somerset would do what they could to obtain her yet for my Lord of Hertford, their son. They should not, however, prevail therein, for my Lord Marquis had given her wholly to him upon certain covenants between them two. And then I asked him, said Northampton, describing the conversation, what he would do if my Lord Protector, handling my Lord Marquis of Dorset gently, should obtain his goodwill, and so the matter to lie wholly in his own neck. He answered, he would never consent thereto. Thus Lady Jane was, for the first time, made an instrument of obtaining that of which her father stood in need. On this occasion it was money. On the next, her life was to be staked upon a more desperate hazard. In future she appears and disappears, now in sight, now passing behind the scenes, against the dark background of intrigue and hatred and bloodshed belonging to her times. End of chapter 8